All right, we can turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14 this morning as we are making our way through this wonderful uh, book of the Bible that is so pertinent to our lives, even though it talks mostly about the future. It is so uh, exactly on cue uh, for our lives today. The title of our message is How to End Well. As we are looking at these 144,000 uh, people who will be with the Lord in the millennial kingdom or the messianic kingdom, and they ended well. And that last hymn that we just sang was very appropriate. They were stayed upon Jehovah, and they were able to uh, live their lives in a way that was pleasing to him and receive this incredible reward that we see here in the beginning of chapter 14. They certainly ended well. And the Bible doesn't just tell us that that's what our goal should be. It actually tells us how they were able to do that. So if we make it that far this morning, we'll see in verses 4 and 5 this just incredible uh, testimony to the faithfulness of these people who will live in the future. And that's where we find ourselves in our study of the book of Revelation, looking at the future uh, tribulation period. We've seen uh, Jesus Christ in chapter 1. This book, after all, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist or the revelation of the false prophet or the revelation of the mark of the beast or the revelation of the tribulation even. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is telling us the events that will lead up to his coming again to this earth to establish his kingdom. We saw also, of course, chapters 2 and 3, probably the most overlooked portion of the book of Revelation, these letters to churches, because after all, this, is a, this book is essentially a letter to a series of churches, and, and the Lord revealed these messages to John to the specific churches that this letter originally went to encouraging them to essentially get their lives right with the Lord. That, that was the essence of every one of those messages. Why? Because Jesus is coming again. That's the motivation for us to live the Christian life. He's coming again, so we ought to order our lives the way that he wants them to be. Interestingly, after the messages to the churches, John is caught up to heaven to be with the Lord for a period of time. He's introduced to this uh, sealed scroll that when it is opened, these judgments begin to be poured out on the earth. This time period that begins in Revelation 6.1 is what we know as the tribulation. We call it the tribulation period. Uh, that is the section in which we find ourselves in uh, our study of Revelation. I say it's interesting that John was caught up after the messages to the churches before the tribulation begins chronologically in Revelation because that is a pretty good timeline for how things are going to happen uh, in the world. The church will be raptured, then these judgments will begin to be poured out upon the world. Be why? Because the world hasn't believed in Christ. And specifically, the nation of Israel hasn't believed in Christ, and that is the single condition that must be met in order for Jesus to establish his kingdom 
upon the earth. The nation of Israel has to believe in him as their Messiah. And so in the, within this chapter 6 through 19, that describes the seven-year period of time leading up to the time when Jesus will come again. We've seen seal judgments. Uh, we had an intermission where Jesus described some other things, including this 144,000 who we will actually see again today. And uh, we saw a series of trumpet judgments, and now we are in the midst of another intermission where we're getting a whole lot of information about events that will take place during this tribulation period. Chapter 14, uh, kind of simplistically broke, broken down, is the destination for believers and unbelievers during the tribulation period and after the tribulation period period. Today we get to the destination of the believers during the tribulation period. But to remind ourselves of uh, kind of chapter 12 is a brief history of the world where we see this woman who we saw represented the nation of Israel. She's going to have a child who we saw, of course, was Jesus. And Satan is there to essentially devour the child to try to prevent this child of God, the one who would crush Satan's head, according to Genesis 3.15, kind of save the world from our sins. Satan is there to devour this child. But of course, the child is protected. He lives his life. He pays the penalty for sins, and he's caught up back to heaven. And then Satan turns his attention to the world. He's going to kind of uh, try to fight against the world, essentially. And during this tribulation period, he's going to use two very specific people that the Bible tells us that are going to live during the seven-year tribulation period. That's what chapter 13 is all about. This coming world ruler we call the Antichrist, is one of those people, probably is the principal person that Satan will use in this world during the tribulation period. And we got a lot of information, obviously, from chapter 13 about him. The Bible reveals an awful lot about this coming Antichrist. And uh, you know, the Bible, when the Bible emphasizes a point, it behooves us to pay attention. To that. If we just ignore this information or we pretend as if uh, the Antichrist, it's just symbolic, it's not really a person, we, we will find ourselves being uh, more likely to fall for the tactics that Satan will use to establish his rule. Even for us in the church age, we believe that we'll be raptured before the tribulation begins. Make no mistake that the world is, is on this trajectory towards this uh, tribulation period, this world rule of the Antichrist. He's not just going to show up one day and suddenly institute world government. The world is going to slowly but surely progress towards this goal of the Antichrist ruling on behalf of Satan in this world. And so if we just pretend like he doesn't exist or he's, this stuff, is it's already happened in the past or it's just allegorical, it's not going to happen, we're going to find ourselves being more and more in line with Satan and his plan for the world, which is, of course, very 
very unfortunate. So the Antichrist, we won't go through all of that information again. But the second principal person that Satan will use during this tribulation period is the one that we call the false prophet. He is from the land, we saw, that that most likely will mean that he is a a Jewish person, uh, that he will have authority as designated by the horns that, that John saw. In, in this vision, he will be the right-hand man of the Antichrist. He's basically going to be the power, essentially, behind the scenes, if you will, the one instituting the plans of the Antichrist. He's going to be able to perform incredible signs, even calling down fire from heaven. And he's going to demand, uh, uh, eventually, he's going to demand that the world worships the Antichrist and therefore worships Satan. And we saw in chapter 13 that the world will do exactly that. But it's not, again, it's not going to be on day, day one. They, the false prophet is revealed into this world and he's just going to turn and say, all right, world, worship this antichrist. No, he's, he's going to be a lot more subtle than that. He's going to drive the world towards something that we can all get around and get behind Uh, and unify the world in some sort of false religion. And then that false religion that, of course, is anti-God. Do we wonder why uh, the world is unifying around immorality and the things that are going on in this world today? Why are they doing these things? Uh, Because they hate God. (laughs) The false prophet will lead the world in hating God and unifying the world around some sort of false religion. And then at the midpoint of the tribulation, when, as we saw, the Antichrist receives a fatal wound and is healed, resurrected, resuscitated, whatever you want to call it, brought back to life, uh, he's the real, the mask is going to come off of this unifying false religion, and it's going to turn to worshiping Satan and this image, or and this uh, Antichrist. He's even going to say that the world needs to make an image to the Antichrist or the beast, and that image, we believe, is going to be put into the temple that exists in Jerusalem and is what Jesus called and the book of Daniel calls the abomination of desolation. That's That's it. That's uh, this image that the false prophet brings to life. And he's going to to say that he's going to parody God. We saw this entire chapter is really a parody of, of biblical Christianity. We have God the Father parodied by Satan himself. The Antichrist is a parody of Jesus Christ. And this false prophet is kind of an imitation or a parody of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to institute this mark. He's going to require the world to take a mark, an active, uh, the, the language indicates an active taking of the mark. Like, I'm not just uh, branded by this thing without some action. I am the person who's taking this mark, is doing the action to receive the mark very different than the the sealing of the holy spirit i don't line up and take the seal of the holy spirit the seal of the holy spirit is done to me as i believe 
in the Lord. So we looked at this last time, the, the, the mark of the beast that the Antichrist requires people to take uh, as a sign of worship of the Antichrist and of Satan. We saw that it is a mark, a physical mark, on the right hand or on the forehead. It's either the Antichrist's name or the number of his name we saw. A sign of worship of the beast. It will be required in the tribulation period, within the seven years, most likely in the second half of the seven-year tribulation period. And so we saw some of the things, therefore, that it is not. It's definitely not the same as the ceiling of these 144,000 that we'll get to today. Uh, that was not a mark, a physical mark, an engraving, a, a tattoo, some, some visible mark on the people. That's what the mark of the beast is. So it's not an ID card. It's not a credit card. I'd say it's not even a microchip. It's not an app on your phone. Uh, it's not a vaccine of any kind. It is a mark that the people receive on their right hand or their forehead, according to the language of the Bible, at any rate, that's what this mark is that the Antichrist will require. And then we saw in verse 18 last time, didn't spend a lot of time on it because the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time on it. The internet does, YouTube does, spends a lot of time on verse 18. Uh, what is 666? Uh, this is the number of the beast, uh, the number of a man. We saw that it was probably uh, some kind of what is termed gematria or assigning numbers to the letters of his name. And when you add it up, it comes to 666. This is a means by which people in the tribulation will know who the Antichrist is. So we don't need to apply gematria to Joe Biden's name or Donald Trump's name or uh, one of the favorites of the 80s was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Each, number, each, each name has six letters in it, so Ronald Reagan must be the Antichrist. That's the kind of ridiculous, I don't know any nicer word to say, ridiculous, sensationalistic interpretation of Scripture that we don't want really any part of. Specifically, to discover these people in the tribulation will be able to know who the Antichrist is by uh, most likely applying this technique to his name, and they'll know exactly who he is. And that brings us to Revelation 14. What is going to be the outcome of the people who don't take the mark of the beast, who worship Christ faithfully, and those who do take the mark of the beast during this tribulation period. Revelation 14 describes that for us. But this first group has uh, a lot of incredible information for us as well. That's why we entitled this How to End Well. First off, we see their destiny. What is the destiny of people who faithfully have trusted in Christ uh, and then have a relationship with him, what is, their, what is their destiny? What is their attitude? What is their lifestyle like? We get all of that from Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Notice first Revelation 14, 1. 
the word of the Lord says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. First, that phrase, then I looked, is the beginning of kind of a new vision or a new, the next scene, a new part of the vision. This is something that uh, uh, Ezekiel did also, a technique just to show kind of another change of the scene. In the vision, and John is probably, uh, he's back on the Isle of Patmos receiving this vision. Probably all, if you'll remember from our introduction, he's receiving this entire book uh, all in one sitting. This is quite a day that the Apostle John had as he is receiving this vision. And it says, uh, then I looked and behold, that word there, behold, is, is actually an, an imperative. It is a command. This is uh, a word that is used as a command quite often in the book of Revelation and really throughout the scriptures when the Lord wants us to pay attention to something, he quite often will use this word behold as an imperative. It's an aorist imperative, something that is, uh, that means it's a command that is expected to, to uh, be carried out kind of like immediately. Hey, pay attention to what is about to be told to you. And that's because Revelation, we are to behold the Lamb because the book of Revelation, like I mentioned earlier, is all about Jesus Christ and the fact that he is coming again. We saw that in the very first chapter, Revelation 1, 7. Behold, there's our word again. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the one that this book is about. It is the Lamb who, this book is about the Lamb who was slain. That slain. That's what Revelation 5, 1 through 6 tells us. This one who was slain for our sins. Uh, Revelation 19, verses 13 through 15, uh, Pontius Pilate used a phrase that is very similar to this, behold the lamb, which is really, uh, well, one day it will be very uh, condemning. It is condemning to the uh, nation of Israel that he used this same phraseology. It will be very convicting to a future generation of Israelites, I'm sure, during this tribulation. John 19, 13 says, Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, John writing the Gospel of John, of course, giving us a lot of details about when Jesus died. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. 
See, they're rejecting Jesus as their king. And that's essentially why he, uh, at least uh, physically anyway, that's why he went to the cross. The Jewish people rejected him as their king. They believed in Caesar instead. In the future tribulation, we've seen the Jewish people, at least initially, are going to believe in the Antichrist as their king. And all of these judgments are going to be poured out to bring them to the position that when uh, in that future, perhaps the Antichrist says, behold your king, they'll say, no, Jesus is our king and he will come again and rescue them. So they are, we are to behold the lamb. These 144,000 did behold the lamb. Notice where the lamb was standing. Jesus was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000. So there's a couple of different interpretations on what it means when it says that he's standing on Mount Zion. Is this a heavenly Mount Zion? Hebrews 12.22 makes mention of that. It says, but you have... Uh, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. So that's one possible interpretation. However, that doesn't do justice to really what we are seeing here in the book of Revelation and uh, really the overall context of this term, uh, Mount Zion. There are very few references to Mount Zion or Zion in this heavenly sense. There are a myriad of examples of Zion, meaning a physical piece of land on the earth. And that is exactly uh, what I believe is being portrayed here in earthly Jerusalem. We see this term Zion making reference to uh, Jerusalem in the Bible. It can be the Temple Mount. Mount Zion can be the Temple Mount. If you look on Google Maps, actually, you can see a place even today that is called Mount Zion. And it is directly to kind of just directly to the west of the Temple Mount and the old, the old city and these kinds of things. So there's still even a place today that is called Mount Zion. And it is specifically in the heart of the nation of Israel. Sometimes Zion can refer to uh, Judah. I can assure you that it never means uh, Salt Lake City, <laughs> Utah, or some place in southern Utah, or some place in Texas. When the Bible says Zion, it means Zion. It means a place in Israel. And uh, these are just a few, a very few of the references to Jesus being on Mount Zion installed as the king. And that is what we are seeing here in Revelation 14. We are looking forward again to the end of the tribulation period. This has happened several times uh, in the book. So we don't have to get worked up when we come to places like the, the sixth seal, for example, that uh, or that, or the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet judgment that look forward to the end in the midst of the vision of the tribulation period. God is outside of time. 
We're already looking at future events. Why can't we look at even further future events in the midst of this? And that's exactly what's happening here. That's why we are in this kind of this parenthetical insertion from chapters uh, 10 through 15, where we're getting more information about the whole tribulation period. We're not necessarily advancing the narrative as we look at these events. We're taking a time out and we're looking at other things like the Antichrist, the false prophet, and here today looking at the end of the tribulation period. And isn't it nice to look towards the conclusion if, you're a, if you are a tribulation saint and you're living in the midst of the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, wouldn't you want a reminder of what it's going to be like in the end? I think I, I personally would. So here I think it's much more likely that by Mount Zion, John and the Lord means the end when Christ comes again and he is established as the king of the earth. Psalm 2.6 says, But as for me, God speaking, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That would mean that the Lamb, who is Jesus, is the king, and he's installed as the king in Mount Zion. Again, getting these, the tribulation people to look forward to the time when Jesus will come again and establish his kingdom. That's what Psalm or uh, Revelation 14 is all about. Isaiah chapter 2 looked forward to this same time period. Verse 1 of chapter 2, the word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So what does he mean when he says the word concerning Judah and Jerusalem? Does he mean Washington, D.C. and America? Or London and England? Or does he mean Judah and Jerusalem? Kind of easy. He means Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is what John is describing here when he says, The Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him one hundred and 44,000. Zechariah 14, of course, makes a direct reference to Jesus physically standing in Israel or Zion when he comes again to the earth. And he has these 144,000 with him on Mount Zion in the future. Again, looking forward to the end of the tribulation period, these 144,000. 
thousand. Now they're not called the the hundred and forty four thousand sealed Jewish witnesses here, but obviously it's an obvious reference to these same people that we saw in chapter seven who were sealed for protection before the trumpet judgments began. They uh, received passively a seal of the Holy Spirit, a different mark, or not necessarily a mark, different from the mark of the beast, two different words uh, that are used there to indicate that, well, is this a physical mark that you can see on the 144,000? It may be, it may not be. But I would equate this with the seal that we also receive as believers. Certainly these 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel were believers, people who had trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And then Jesus sets them aside for this special mission. And he gives them the seal of the Holy Spirit in order to physically protect them during this tribulation period so they can carry out the mission that he has for them. So they were also sealed by the Holy Spirit for salvation, exactly the same way that you and I are if you have trusted in Christ. According to Ephesians 1.13, in him, Paul says in Ephesians 1.13 again, in him, we are in him by way of faith, in him. Once we put our faith or our trust in Christ, he places us, God places us in Christ. He sees us, uh, God the Father sees us through the lens of Christ when we trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. We set aside everything else, our religion, are, uh, oh, I've done a good enough good works. Well, my good is probably going to outweigh my bad at the end. We put aside all of those kinds of ideas, ideas of earning our salvation, and we put our trust fully, completely in what Jesus did for us on the cross in order to be made right with God. The instant we do that, he makes us right. He imputes Christ's righteousness to us. He gives it to us, free and clear. No other uh, requirements need to be met. At the instant that you trust in him, he does that for you. And then he seals you, as is mentioned here in Ephesians 1.13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, so you listened to the message of the gospel, and you believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our, our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So at the moment you hear the gospel, understand who Jesus is, God, the eternal son who died for you on the cross, and you believe it, you trust in it, you put your faith in that, you are sealed. Not a, not a moment before, not at some point after when you get the liver quiver and something great happens in your life. Oh, now I'm sealed by the Holy Spirit. Nope. It is at the instant 
that you believe. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Very similar to this sealing that the 144,000 received. And if you don't have the seal, you are not a Christian. You are not in Christ if you have not been indwelt by the Spirit. That's one of kind of the problems of uh, the, the being sealed later in life belief. This is kind of common among uh, Pentecostal people, I believe, uh, charismatic types that they think that they're going to have some experience later in life, and that's when they uh, actually get sealed. Well, the problem is, in the meantime, from the time you believed until you're sealed, according to the Bible, you're not a Christian. Romans 8, 9. However, Paul says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed, or better translation is, if as is the fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit is the marker of a Christian as a person who's believed, you heard the gospel, you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit when that happened. And again, it happens when you believe, when you're transferred from death to life, as it says in John 524, based on one single condition, believing, and you are kept there by the hand of God and the hand of Christ, according to John chapter 10, you are kept there. We can't even take ourselves out of that. I, I hate, to t- <laughs> hate to be the bearer of bad news. If you don't want to be there anymore, too late. Jesus has you, God has you in his hand, and you are with him, in him, forever. And that's what these 144,000 are. Their destiny at this point, anyway, is to be with the Lord in Mount Zion during his millennial reign that takes place after the kingdom period. So here we are in the church age now. We've already, uh, the world has gone through creation, the choosing of Abraham, the, the the, uh, the fall of man first, of course, the choosing of Abraham to bring out of a new nation, the Messiah. That's essentially what the Old Testament is about. Then the Messiah comes to the earth. He lives, he dies, he ascends back to heaven. And now we are left with the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to do the work of the Lord in the church age. One day, uh, God is going to decide that our time is up. He will rapture us, take us to heaven where we will stand before the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ and receive a a reward based on our faithfulness. And at some point subsequent to that, the tribulation period will begin. This seven-year tribulation that we're studying in Revelation that begins in Revelation 6 verse 1 that seven-year period. It's seven years because we know there's a final week uh, from the book of Daniel. It's really the only place in the Bible that tells us that it's seven years. Daniel chapter 9 indicates to us that there is one week left for the nation of Israel. 69 of those uh, weeks or seven-year periods have already taken place. There's one that is yet in the future. That is this tribulation period that we're studying. 
in Revelation. And then at the end of that tribulation period, Christ will come again and establish his kingdom. So this is why we we are called uh, Flushing Bible Church is a pre-tribulational rapture. Rapture happens before the tribulation. We are pre-millennial because the Bible clearly teaches, very obviously teaches, there's no other conclusion that you can possibly come to in being faithful to the text than to see that Jesus comes again before or pre the kingdom to rule and reign over a literal kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. And that's, this is kind of the time period that we're looking at here in Revelation 14 is when Jesus comes again and he's standing on Mount Zion in these faithful people, these faithful 144,000. It doesn't mean they're the only 144,000. There will be a myriad of people in this kingdom uh, period with the Lord, including you and me as believers in Christ. We will be there. Uh, But these 144,000 are singled out, I think, for a very important reason, because they ended well. And notice their attitude uh, that is described in verses 2 and 3. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So uh, notice that John, first off, that he hears a, a voice from heaven indicating that he's most likely on the earth. He is experiencing this. He is a legitimate, making a legitimate eyewitness testimony to this book of revelation and make no mistake that his original audience would have considered the apostle John to be an a number one perfect eyewitness to, to listen to if this were a court of law, if we were determining whether or not the apostle John is a reliable witness, he would get like a five star, a plus plus rating as being a reliable witness, being an apostle, uh, being having lived with the Lord for his entire three and a half year ministry on the earth. He was one of the very first people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, the most prominent church outside of, of Jerusalem. At this point when he's writing, he's the last living apostle. He is literally a giant I guess he's not literally a giant. He is figuratively a giant of the faith. He is a reliable witness. He is the one receiving this word. And he, and he hears the voice of the singers, probably the sound of many. I mean, we can get into the language. We can debate this at a later time. What exactly is he hearing? That's kind of missing the point of the thing. I think that he's hearing, uh, when you hear a choir sing, it sounds like one voice, but obviously it's many people uh, who are singing, and that's uh, what John is is hearing here. And he's, uh, it is a new song for a new reality. 
This kingdom that is established on the earth is a new reality. So quite often uh, in the book of Psalms, you see this idea of singing a new song when something new has been revealed. And, and believe it or not, the church is, is something new. Even though we're 2,000 years on, this is a new creation of God. That's why it's appropriate for us to sing songs in our church service, because we're singing about this new thing that God has done, creation of a new body made up of Jewish and Gentile people coming together in one new body who have uh, trusted in the Lord. And so that's what's happening here. They're singing this new song. And notice that the 144,000 have this attitude of worship. They are the ones who are learning this song. In fact, they are the only ones who can learn this song that is being sung according to verse 3, before the throne, that's the throne of God, before the four living creatures, those angelic beings that we saw back uh, in chapters 4 and 5, the elders, Uh, If you'll remember from our study in those same chapters, we saw that that is most likely representative of the church itself, these elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. First, we can notice that only the redeemed can worship. uh, That is true worship. Worship being a recognition of the fact that God is superior to us. We are recognizing his worth over ours. That's what worship is all about. It, it's, uh, it is an understanding that God is superior to us, uh, essentially that he is our maker, he is our redeemer, and therefore we are responsible to him. It's so much more than just singing the cool new song that's come down uh, through the Christian music uh, uh, ministry monstrosity, (laughs) Uh, money-making machine, if you will. It's so much more than just singing a song. It is recognizing who God is and that by, uh, by definition, who he is means I am responsible to him. That is what worship is, coming to that Understanding, And that's exactly uh, what these 144,000 are doing. They are, they are coming together and uh, understanding who God is and who they are in light of who God is. They are not forsaking the assembling together, as Hebrews 10.25 says. But they are understanding their position before a holy God. Psalm 51 and verse 15 says, David says, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God or kind of the the true worship of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. That is, that's the key for worship. It's, uh, there's just such an incredible misunderstanding of what worship is in the world today. 
And according to Psalm 51, the best method of worship is having a broken and contrite heart, understanding who God is and who you are in relation to him. Understanding that your sin, even as a believer, of course, your sin is a barrier between you and God. It keeps you from enjoying a right relationship with him, even though a kind of big scheme of things. If you're a believer, yes, of course, if you've trusted in Christ, you have a relationship with him. But if you still have unconfessed sin, there's still a barrier. You're still not living uh, the, the Christian life the way that it's designed to be lived. So we go to him with this broken and contrite heart. We confess our sins to him. That is, that is an incredible act of worship to confess your sins to the Lord, recognizing who he is and who you are in light of who he is. And so we won't uh, delve too much into the, the song and the singing and all of these kinds of things, because I think that detracts from uh, really understanding what worship is and and how it is such a positive thing for these 144,000. Clearly, they understand who they are and who God is, uh, who they are. They understand who God is and who they are in light of the fact of who God is. That is the true spirit of worship. Understanding God is holy. He created you. He redeemed you. He wants you to uh, live in a certain way And that's what we see in their lifestyle. So how to end well, first off, understand your destiny as a believer. Understand that you as a believer will be with Christ in his kingdom. That ought to affect your attitude and what you think of the Lord. That ought to give you this spirit of worship, having a broken and contrite heart before the Lord. And when we do this in the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives will uh, have a tendency to align with the word of God. And we will live lives that are uh, in line with what we find in scripture. That's exactly what these 144,000 have done. Notice their lifestyle. These are the ones who have not been, verse 4, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. They kept themselves It says there in verse four, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women for they have kept themselves chaste. So uh, essentially there, the, you know, the Bible is very point blank uh, in a lot of uh, instances Uh, in our English translations. We tend to uh, make it sound nice, (laughs) Uh, make it uh, PG, if you will. Uh, but what essentially what that means when the rubber meets the road, these 144,000 kept themselves sexually pure in, in the uh, power of the Holy Spirit. They were able to uh, not be defiled 
with women, for they have kept themselves chaste, is what the language says, uh, or what the English language says. And essentially, it means that they they kept themselves morally, sexually pure. That's exactly uh, what is being described there. And this is, as far as the Christian life goes, this is the first and most important aspect of the life of the believer. Now, why would I say that? Well, because that's what the Bible uh, would lead us to believe. The Bible has a lot to say about our moral purity as believers in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 being one of those places. Paul says in verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you, as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. First and foremost, I, this in, a, in Revel, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, this comes before the rapture passage there in verse 13. Before we get to that, you ought to know that the very most important thing in your life as far as your lifestyle goes as a believer, is that you remain sexually pure. And that, uh, according to the scriptures, means that sexual relations are confined to marriage. And of course, this is not a, a popular message in the world today, and it gets less and less popular as time goes on. But the, the word of God is, is unchanging and God is unchanging. His standards are unchanging. He doesn't change his standards just because we've progressed so far down into the toilet that, oh, God says, oh, those poor people, look at this horrible world that we're living in, and I'll just lower my standard a little bit for them so they can try to attain to my standard. No, that's that's not at all how it works. The Bible very clearly teaches that sexual relations are for a man and a woman who are have come together in marriage. First uh, Corinthians six, eighteen. Paul says, "Flee immorality." The term there for immorality is porneia. Flee porneia. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. As a believer, you're not, you're not your own. So you don't get to make your own decisions in this regard as to how you're going to act. You do what your master tells you, and your master has told you not to engage in this only under uh, very specific circumstances of marriage, marriage that is between a man and a woman, uh, very clearly taught in the scriptures. Jesus takes it even a little bit further than that. Matthew six twenty seven. 27. Uh, and that's the wrong verse. I copied down the wrong one. I did this twice. Matthew 6.27 is a great admonition, but it's not the one that fits here. It's Matthew 5.27. Uh, 
Matthew 5:27 says, "You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart." So Jesus, as he is so often does, takes it right to the very heart of the matter. It's it's your thinking. It's not necessarily your physical actions that are the determiner of whether or not you are right in this regard with the Lord. It's what's going on in your mind. So that should say Matthew 5, 27, up there on the screen. Uh, looking with lust in your eyes is the same as committing adultery. So there's any number of uh, uh, applications to that. I'll allow the Holy Spirit to apply that to your heart and mind, however uh, you would like. Obviously, this idea of looking is uh, extremely prominent in our society today. Every one of us has access, a click away from looking with lust in our hearts and our, our eyes. Obviously, uh, something that needs to be avoided needs to be fleed from as paul said 1 corinthians 6:18 flee immorality every other sin that a man commits is outside the body but the immoral man sins against his own body and these 144,000 did this and it allowed them to serve the lord the same way that uh it is for people today. Uh, Paul was able to serve the Lord because he was pure in this manner. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7. He says, yet I wish that all men were even as myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. They can serve the Lord. Single people can do things that married people can't uh, for the Lord. However, he goes on, of course, to say that if, you know, this is a gift essentially from the Lord. And if you can't uh, uh, comply with being sexually pure in this regard, then you ought to marry instead because you can still serve the Lord as a married person. Of course, this idea of being uh, sexually pure with one woman as your wife is a, a qualification for an elder. First Timothy 3, 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. How can you be above reproach? The husband of one wife. Very first, first requirement to be above reproach is to be the husband of one wife. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and he goes on from there. And you could be saying, well, I have no desire to serve the Lord. Uh, I, there's no way on earth I'm ever going to be an elder. So it's all fine. I can just kind of live however I want. Well, that's denying reality. The reality is what the Bible tells us. Do we want to be like the people uh, in this world who just deny reality. We're seeing it more and more. How, there are things going on in this world, like, for example, how could probably one of the most feminist institutions in the world, uh, collegiate 
Uh, and you think of academia, they're, gonna, they're all of the isms, feminism, uh, e- anything that fits with the quote-unquote woke agenda, that's, you find it in academia and colleges. How could a university, particularly an Ivy League university, endorse the idea of a man swimming in a woman's bathing suit against other women? How, how can they do that? They are denying reality. Reality is revealed to us in the Word of God. God created us, male and female. He created us to live in fellowship with Him. That's reality. When we deny what the Bible says about whatever it is, we are denying reality. We're like the people who are supposedly feminists saying it's good for a man to compete against women in sports. That's crazy. That's denying reality. We do the same thing when we live our lives contrary to what the scriptures say, and it ends in ruin. Whoever you are, if you think you're going to be a a pastor or not going to be a pastor, this sin will ruin your life. Proverbs 5, 7. Solomon says, Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from my word, the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. I mean, is he describing 21st century divorce law here <laughs> for us? Yeah, pretty much. Verse 11, Proverbs 5, And you groan at your final end, when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, How I have hated instruction, and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. And the context of Proverbs 5 is sexual sin. It will ruin your life. Point blank. Full stop. That's all there is to it. If you are a married person, it is a nuclear bomb going off in your marriage. Verse 20 of Proverbs 5. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. It doesn't say the ways of a pastor are before the eyes of the Lord. It says the eyes, uh, that the ways of a man, all people are before the Lord and he is watching and he knows that the, the consequences of the sin follow right along with the sin. So these 144,000, first off, are sexually pure and probably most importantly that's the case and we we will stop right there for today and pick it up with the rest of these things that these uh, believers were doing but it's important to understand uh, in this regard that these believers are justified at the moment that they trust in Christ, even these 144,000, of course, this applies to us also. And then they are sanctified, the second tense 
of their salvation is really is exclusive from this first tense of their salvation. This happens at the moment that they trust in Christ, that his righteousness is imputed to them. And then God doesn't just rapture us up to heaven at the moment we believe. Obviously, we're still here. So he has a a life that he wants us to live, and he wants us to end that life well. That's what so much of the Bible is about, is instruction about how to live your life in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Revelation 14, verses 4 and 5, being one of those places, it is describing this. It's describing the walk of life. It's not describing how to be saved. It's describing how to live as a saved person. And one of the keys to being successful in sanctification is understanding the third tense of your salvation, the glorification That as a believer, it's as if, in God's eyes, it's as if you've already been raptured, resurrected, given your glorified body. That's what the end of Romans 8 is all about. Uh, We look forward to this fact that we will live with the Lord forever. Wherever he is, we will be with him. We will come again with him. At the end of the tribulation, Revelation 19 describes that very clearly the believers coming back with the Lord as he establishes his kingdom. These 144,000 will be on the earth when that happens. And they will, I assure you, they are going to receive a special reward because they were successful in this second tense of their salvation as they walked by the power of the Spirit in their Christian life, or uh, for lack of a better term. That's what we do. As we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are sanctified daily. And when we don't do that, we can confess our sins to the Lord, be made right, and continue walking with Him. Not earning justification, not earning glorification in the future, but rather living a life that is pleasing to the Lord today. And so we will pick it up next time in verse 4 of Revelation 14, how to end well. Keep in mind your destiny. Have an attitude of worship that is a broken and a contrite heart before the Lord. And then we'll get into more details about the, the lifestyle of the believer next time. But keeping in mind very, very first thing, is to be morally pure before him. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Revelation that is so uh, pertinent to our lives even today. The the book itself tells us that there is a blessing to those who uh, read and heed these things that we find here. And today we've certainly come to one of those passages that is most definitely a blessing to those who who hear it and heed it. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us uh, in our walk with you. We know, I pray that we would know that the Holy Spirit is with us. He is with us always. And I pray that we would understand that, that we would know that, and that we would walk in light of that incredible truth 
that you are with us, that you will never forsake us. You are with us wherever we go. You are with us when we face the, the darkest, deepest temptations of our lives. You are with us. And I pray that you would remind us of that fact and that we would be found faithful in the end. We thank you that, that your word gives us the promise that, that you are with us and you will forgive us even when we do fail. I pray, Lord, that you would go with us in this week to come, that we would live lives that are honoring and pleasing to you, done in light of the great things that you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.